Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. Tonight, on behalf of the Royal Academy and the London Original Print Fair, I'm delighted to welcome artist, musician, Royal Academician and advocate for arts and education, Bob and Roberta Smith, to our annual event this year celebrating the 30th anniversary of London Original Print Fair. For tonight's event, Bob and Roberta Smith will be explaining why prints are not just for hanging in frames, but also for putting in windows. Bob and Roberta Smith's best-known works are Make Art, Not War, and Letter to Michael Gove, a letter to the UK Secretary of State for Education, reprimanding him for the destruction of Britain's ability to draw, design and sing. In 2013, Bob and Roberta Smith founded the Art Party, which is not a formal political party, but a grouping of artists and organisations who are deeply concerned about the government's diminishing the role of all arts and design in schools. He is currently standing against Tory MP Michael Gove in Surrey Heath at the general election, and in his manifesto proposes that all schools should offer art subjects at GCSE and A-level. Joining him a bit later on in conversation is Mike Taylor, who is the director of Pauper's Press, which is a fine art print and publishing studio, working with many of the UK's leading contemporary artists. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Bob and Roberta Smith. So you all have underneath your bottoms, hopefully you've lifted them up, a print and the idea about this print is that you display it in your window. You can frame it. <laughs> and if you come up to me later, I might even sign it. But it'll be an unlimited edition. And uh, the idea is that's essentially the reason why prints are not just for framing. They are for putting in your windows. And we're in an election period. And uh, essentially my idea or my thought about elections is that it's good to not leave politics to politicians because um, they tend to work to a script which they've agreed and it tends to, whatever party they're from, be about the lowest common denominator. I thought I'd take you through a journey. This journey is not specifically to do with printmaking, but it is absolutely to do with graphics. And it is to do with making your mark and having that mark reproduced in some sense. And then you see that mark and you're inspired by the mark of an artist or an individual. So that sense of things being graphic is uh, extremely important to me because that, on some absolutely fundamental basic level, which the Egyptians knew about, which the Romans knew about, which the Greeks knew about, that is visual communication. So uh, this first slide, I'm going to run through these quite quickly. This is a film. These are slides from a film that I made in... Uh, uh, in 2013 with a film director called Tim Newton and we made a film uh, which was depicting Michael Gove visiting a conference in, in, in Scarborough and the conference in Scarborough was called the Art Party Conference and it actually was a party, it wasn't a political party, it was a party to try and bring everybody together who was interested in the arts and worried and I think this is whatever political party you come, uh, you, you know, you might support. I think we're all a bit worried about the position of arts in schools because we all have 
you know, cultural aspirations for our children. You know, we all want them to be, you know, the lead in the school play or be able to play the violin or, you know, to be a great painter or designer. And we have a sense that that's part, actually part, of their, uh, uh, their, their journey in, in, in becoming the human beings that they become. Literally, if they're studying music, they are developing their voice. And in visuality, it's the same thing. What disturbed me very much about Michael Gove is that he's trying to push the STEM subjects. When I think he's absolutely right to do that. Uh, we need to get kids to study maths and science and take that more seriously. But if we do that at the expense of the arts, we damage, and actually this is the, this is the thing, I'm beginning to sound like a real politician now, aren't I? The creative industries are worth 77 billion pounds if you deny kids access to the arts, you're denying them access to that economy. I mean, that's, on some basic level, that's what you're doing. This process of campaigning, this is a campaign which some might say has come to fruition. This is me and a bunch of my students outside of Tower Hamlets council offices. Tower Hamlets wanted to sell Old Flow, uh, the sculpture by Henry Moore. I absolutely opposed that because I knew, because of my understanding of Henry Moore, that that sculpture was a sculpture derived from his drawings of people sheltering in the shelters, in the tubes, in the Second World War. He loved Picasso, we know that. And he wanted to make his statement about peace. And Old Flow actually was a statement about peace. It was designed for the UNESCO in France. That project was never realized. But for, it was a very keep calm, carry on image, but it is London's Guernica on some level. You know, the German planes were Heinkel bombers bombing London. And in Picasso's painting, they're Junkers 88s destroying Guernica. But it is the same image. Lufa Rahman doesn't know that. The mayor of Tower Hamlets doesn't know that. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't have that understanding. of. He just sees it as a big lump of bronze which can be sold in the international art market. I think that's wrong, you know. That's, that's our story. That's Britain's story, London's story. Uh, to sell that uh, in auction is the wrong thing to do. That's just come up for judicial review. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the review of that was, but one of the... <laughs> I don't want to sound very partisan, but Lufa Rahman's been kicked out of Tower Hamlets yesterday. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing for this sculpture. I also think it's probably a good thing for the people of Tower Hamlets. Uh, so we've got all these artists up to Scarborough in the Art Party Conference. And so you see Jeremy Della there, wonderful artist called Pavel Buchler. That's Stephen Dukar uh, from the Art Fund. And uh, Cornelia Parker, RA. And uh, Cornelia Parker was brilliant. Cornelia Parker said that when she was 14 or 15, she had no concept that art existed, but she uh, was taken to an art gallery by the school and it introduced her to a whole world of art. And her parents were too busy working on this small holding, keeping their finances alive, digging potatoes and planting out tomatoes. They saw Connie, who's this big strapping Amazon person, as like the, the boy, the, in, the inheritor of doing this manual work, basically. And Connie went off to this art school, uh, art museum, and just thought, actually, I want to play. I want a bit of space in my life. I want to find out who I am. And she said that to this audience, and it's in the film, and it's a wonderful uh, life-enhancing statement. 
So this is a self-aggrandizing photo, uh, photograph. This is me marching across the sands in Scarborough uh, with everybody who had come to the conference uh, with, their, with their banners that they'd made. And here's Michael Grove. <laughs> He's called Michael Grove in the film, deciding to come up to uh, Scarborough. And he's there with his long-suffering head civil servant, Hetty Nettleship, who I based on one of my students at the CAS, uh, who was a civil servant, not in Michael Grove's office, but, but for Eric Pickles. When I showed her the rushes for the film, she said, that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> uh, and this is the letter to Michael Gove. We sh Connie showed that in the summer exhibition last year in her black and white room. I was really honoured to have that piece in it. Connie had seen it up at the, uh, at, at the, Scarborough, art fair, uh, at the Scarborough art party. Uh, but it basically it runs through all the reasons why I think it's wrong to diminish the arts in schools. That's me in my studio in Ramsgate. And that's another complicated political story because my studio is in Ramsgate where Nigel Farage is standing. <laughs> These are uh, paintings for flags on top of the uh, Royal Festival Hall. Uh, I think the summer before last. So the idea about flags, and this is, about, this is an idea about graphics again, flags are about uniting everybody under one flag. And we say we're all part of this system we all kind of understand what this system's about and we support it my flags were sort of ex existentialist flags promoting uh difference and anxiety so they all said things like do you really want to make abstract art are you married what's wrong uh are you lost what do you do all the time so as people were walking past the festival hall the idea was that you sort of promote existential questioning <laughs> And then we produced a musical piece. I'm very into, uh, or, uh, you know, I really enjoy collaborating with different uh, people. So we collaborated with an amazing uh, choral group at the Royal Festival Hall and made a piece where we sang to the Royal Festival Hall. In, in a way, the idea of the Royal Festival Hall is, is an iconic public building about the arts, you know, uh, built after the Second World War, part of the reconstruction of Britain. And it had been showering London with culture Ever since, the 19, ever since 1951. And my idea was that we would group around it and we would sing back to it. This is my studio in Ramsgate. Apropos of nothing, really, but you can see all these signs and, and paintings and sculptures. And then this is, uh, this is a project that I did in Kilkenny in Ireland. And, and this was a lovely project, and it included these prints, the ten, my ten feminist icons. Uh, this this project uh, was uh, put together by an amazing uh, curator called Josephine Kelleher, and her idea was that she wanted to, through art, give, uh, allow a kind of voice, a so create a sort of social space where people could talk in Ireland about what had happened to Ireland, uh, because Ireland, she felt that Ireland was really being run by the Troika, and that the Irish people, far from... Uh, demonstrating in the streets like they have been doing in Athens, they're more accepting of the situation. And <laughs> she wanted to kind of make a make a sort of social space where people could talk about uh, uh, all the problems that Ireland had been having. 
Uh, and so I made this exhibition which had all sorts of different elements in it, but had lots of spaces which were spaces of facilitation. <laughs> so this is a piece uh, which we did. This is in the local council parliament building in Kilkenny. So there's a big, there's a big parliament debating chamber and we built an enormous bonfire in it uh, full of people's anxieties and it was a it was a great piece but it also is a a, a conglomeration of other pieces that I've done I mean uh, so we so the Peter Hain is a shit <laughs> it's a piece from uh, 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 during the Iraq war and I made a whole series of pieces attacking the Labour Party leadership. The funny thing about that was that, you know, they, they were invited to open the Sage Centre uh, because it was a kind of, you know, new Labour arts cultural project. And Cherry Blair hosted a, a dinner in the Baltic on the top floor. And the whole of the cabinet had to come through my show, which was say, saying that Tony Blair is a zombie of death and that Pete Hayne is a shit and Gordon Brown is short-sighted. It was great. Uh, uh, and so, uh, so, so it had relics of other campaigns and battles in it. And then this is Josephine. This is her, this is a piece that she came up with really, this idea of the talking stick. You know, in Ireland they have this idea in primary schools, they give a talking stick and only the child who has the talking stick is allowed to talk. And she felt that Ireland had been given a massive talking stick, which nobody could lift, and that was a kind of dampener on democracy. So we made this massive uh, talking stick, and that's Josephine trying to lift it. One of the themes that runs through my work is, this, is a, a key idea that sort of art makes people powerful. You know, if you, if you, if you develop your artistic sensibility, your artistic nature, whether you make art or not, it kind of makes you powerful. Boris Johnson, strangely, is a very good, is a very good portrait painter. Every private school in this country has excellent art rooms. If you walk down to St. James, if you go to the, from St. James's to the Tate, you walk past Westminster School, if you look in the basement, you'll see their wonderful art rooms. Every, they, you know, wealthy people in this country, they understand that art is part of the language of selfhood. I think we ought to extend that to all children. So this is about shouting and speaking. And then this is, these are, uh, my, my politics comes from all sorts of different places. One, one place it comes from is my, uh, uh, my elder sister who was uh, in Grosvenor Square in 1968 and she thought it wasn't violent enough, and so she left. <laughs> she was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, she ended up then working for Boris Johnson, closing down swimming pools and <laughs> building gleaming art centers. Uh, but she gave me a book, uh, which is an amazing book, of John Hartfield's uh, 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 Dardai's photo montages from the 1930s, uh, which he then... Uh, made in Swiss Germany, which were then sold into Germany as part of AIZ magazine. Seeing that when you're 13 or 14, you know, it's a kind of a, a visual piece of political kitsch now, but my God, it really revolutionized my life, actually. And I, I thought, well, that is... I didn't know how to articulate it then, but I thought that is what art can do. You know, that is, if you don't do... Almost, if you don't... As a citizen, say what you think 
to these politicians, uh, then there's something wrong. You know, we ought to feel that we're empowered to speak to politicians absolutely directly. And uh, but another political influence was having two: this elder sister Charlotte and my other sister Roberta and my mum. And then my dad died when I was quite young. So I had these three very powerful women bring me up and 1970s feminism was also a very important influence on me because I think feminism isn't about uh, just just useful for uh, you know women I think feminism is a huge humanistic movement of the 1970s which revolutionized political thinking and these are my 10 uh, feminist heroes and it was great that Mike Taylor invited me to do this uh, to make a series of prints you know, uh, a, a ludicrous financial proposition, I suggest. <laughs> and I said, well, we're going to make it about feminism, Mike. And it, and uh, it's like, mm, okay, let's see how that works. But it is amazing. And, and these prints are in the, uh, in, the, in the art fair. You can see them. Uh, but it was great fun to do. So I had, uh, I love Andrea Jorkin. Andrea Jorkin was a powerful, really powerful voice against pornography. Badisha is a contemporary person, but Badisha sometimes presents Woman's Hour. She writes for The Guardian. She's a novelist. She wrote a brilliant article, which I was really impressed with, about how she had had an affair with somebody in the media that everybody loves, and they think that this guy is a nice guy. Uh, I don't know who it is, actually, but they think that everybody thinks that this guy is a mensch. You know, they think that he is a lovely person. But he was a bastard. <laughs> and she wrote this long article about it. It didn't reveal his name. But it was a fantastic article about this interrelation between men and women. Julie Birchall, who's a bit of a monster who writes for the Daily Mail. But Julie Birchall, when I was a kid, my God, uh, her articles in the Face magazine, she is a powerful political thinker. And although I, I, I rarely agree with anything that she says, she is a fantastic voice in British culture. She is punk. You know, she is Vivian Westwood. She is such a strong voice. She's a brilliant person. Uh, Suzanne Moore, who writes for The Guardian. I was very impressed with Suzanne Moore. Slightly bonkers thing to do, but she stood as, she's part of the reason why I'm standing against Michael Gove, actually. She stood against Diane Abbott in, in Hackney. Um, uh, because she felt it was rather hypocritical that Diane had sent her son to a private school. Uh, which was an, an option that she didn't have. So she's an interesting character. She writes brilliant articles for The Guardian. Uh, I've got Maya Angelou. I've got Billie Holiday, for obvious reasons, really. Rosa Luxemburg. I've got Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith's blue songs are all about singing about how men have done her down. But you can see in Bessie Smith's performances a kind of rock, you know, a kind of elemental kind of presence and then Naomi Klein but really essential in all of this is Hannah Arendt and I'll come back to Hannah Arendt a bit later perhaps uh, this is this is uh, one of the spaces this was the uh, space that I created which was called uh, the, uh, the the it was a kind of conversation space where young artists from Dublin could uh, and they made wonderful charts and diagrams about people's arguments about what was happening in, in Ireland. And then we had a, an art room. We had a slight reference to Father Ted in it, because you could do uh, perspective drawing in it. You could, you could draw this little shallot 
small because it was far away, or this large onion close because it was large. And then you could meet the German philosopher Hannah Arendt, and you could dress as her and uh, watch films of Hannah Arendt interviewed on German television. And, uh, and so this is an actress being Hannah Arendt. One of the fun, fun things about Hannah Arendt is that she was a really serious smoker, and this was like a kid's workshop, so we gave them all e-cigarettes, and they could sit there puffing away, pretending to be Hannah Arendt. And Hannah Arendt was a really powerful person. She was, uh, she was, uh, this is a terrible way to frame Hannah Arendt's life, but she was Heidegger's girlfriend. Heidegger uh, betrayed her to the Gestapo. She had to leave, uh, she had to uh, leave Germany, move to Paris when she became friends with all the sort of Frankfurt school people like Walter Benjamin in Paris who were exiled from Germany. When Germany invaded France, she had to escape. She was interred in a, in, a, in, a, in a prison camp. She actually escaped from a prison camp, Camp Gurs, and uh, whereas Walter Benjamin had to commit suicide on the Pyrenees, trying to escape uh, from, uh, uh, you know, from the German occupation of France. She got to uh, America. She became the first, uh, um, she became really the first, she wouldn't accept these terms at all, but she became the first, um, a professor of philosophy, a female professor of philosophy at Princeton. All her life was about trying to work out why Germany, this sophisticated democratic nation, had been overrun by the Nazis. And she concluded that, you know, democracy, democracy has to be defended uh, by participation, association, and by uh, uh, taking part and conversation was an extremely important part of her thinking. She annoyed all her Marxist chumps because she said, actually, uh, uh, business and social space and public space have to meet, and that makes a bigger public space that's richer. But she is a fantastic person if you're thinking about how, uh, how to maintain voices in society. So a lot of my thinking about this is very kind of inspired, if you like, by Hannah Arendt. And I made a, I made a Hannah Arendt kiosk uh, on Stratford Station so you could watch a film imagining if Hannah Arendt had had an affair with Pierre de Baron de Corbetin, the inventor of the modern Olympics, who lived in an earlier period. But the idea was that Corbetin had experienced the uh, Corbetan had experienced uh, the the Dreyfus affair and uh, the Franco-Prussian wars at the end of the 19th century, and he invented he tried to reinvent the idea about the Olympics, so that uh, so that people would you know fight on the football field rather than on the battlefield. In a way, that's a very Arendtian kind of idea. So here's Hannah Arendt again. She's actually the same actress who played Hannah. Hetty Nettleship in the earlier film. This was very funny, you know. All of this imagery was uh, displayed throughout the Olympics. When you went into the Olympic Park through Stratford Station, you had to go through all this bonkers imagery from, that, from these films about Hannah Arendt and Pierre de Corbetin. This is another mad campaign. This is, uh, this is trying to stop Nigel Farage winning in Thanet. And I'm working with this amazing man, Nigel Askew. He's completely bonkers, uh, but he runs a pub in 
in, uh, in Ramsgate. He is the real pub landlord, and he's standing with bears, of all people, in this party called the Reality Party. And it's all about sort of anti-fracking. Uh, but he, uh, he's trying to associate... I mean, this is really going into politics in a deep way, but Nigel Farage is very pro-fracking because it, you know, provides jobs, basically. But Fanit is a huge chalk aquifer. So what we're trying to remind people that is if you pump that aquifer full of formic acid, it's not going to be very good for what is this area that's commonly known as the Garden of England. In fact, there's a company uh, called Fanit Earth, which is... Which is, which is big business, actually, in Thanet, which is all about growing vegetables. They want to grow 25% of Britain's vegetables. They're not going to be able to do that, basically, with the, with, if, if, the, if that area has been undermined with fracking. So we're trying to link, in some way, uh, fracking with Farage. And, so, and purity and beer and nationalism. <laughs> so we've got this, what the frack beer? And uh, we've been selling that in in Thanet, trying to raise campaign. A lot of these, some of these things are quite. They might might appear quite frivolous. So this painting says, "Freedom." George Michael has done more for human rights than the Jam, the Clash, that bloke from the Boomtown Cats, and Bono and Sting all put together. So that might seem a frivolous painting, but actually, I think it's true. You know, I mean, George Michael has lived a life as a you know, openly gay guy, which we all understand now, but in the 1980s when he first started living that life, nobody understood. And in fact, the police and the, and the press have pilloried him all the way through his life. And I think that's wrong. You know, I think it's great that George Michael exists. <laughs> I love his music. And, and I think he has done more for human rights than the jam. <laughs> This is a true story. This reveals my... Actually, I'm still the same person that's in this drawing, in this painting. So I'll read this to you. Uh, this, is in, this is in Soho. Uh, this is in a building in Soho. But it says, 5th of March, 1972. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with bohemians. I had long hair. I wore scarves. I had corduroy jackets with holes in. I had bohemian trousers. Uh, I had... Bohemian trousers and a bohemian girlfriend. I used to hang out in Soho. I wanted to meet my heroes, Brendan Behan, Sylvia Plath, Ted Hughes, and that Welsh bloke who wrote Under Milk Wood. I never met anyone. I did meet Francis Bacon once. I said to him, you don't look much like yourself portraits. He smiled and he gave me a fiver. He said, you won't get anywhere dressed like that. No one likes a scruff. And then this is a sculpture I made as a tribute to Amy Winehouse. Uh, when I painted the Michael Gove painting, I, I, I wrote that letter the, the day that, Michael, uh, that Amy Winehouse and Lucian Freud died. It was an awful weekend, actually. It was also when that lunatic shot all those people in Norway. It was a dreadful weekend. And I just thought somehow you had to say something about trying to get the next generation going, you know. And uh, so this is a, this is a piece... And, Basically, you can walk around this and you get dizzier and dizzier as you go around it. It says, this is Amy Winehouse. She was Brendan Behan. She was Dylan Marley's Thomas. Uh, she was Sylvia Plath. And she wrote all her stuff. And she was Billie Holiday. And the red tops and the media silenced her. So this is me and my celebrity friends. This is L. Kennedy. This is a crazy but a wonderful project. 
And uh, I thought, I don't really want to get involved in uh, commemorating the First World War. But weirdly, in 2014, I did three projects about the First World War. And this is a wonderful project. This is the Letter to the Unknown Soldier. It's an online project. You can look at it. And, uh, and it is about trying to encourage other voices, other ideas about, uh, about the First World War. And if you go onto that site, you come across a plethora of different views about the war. And it's a really interesting thing to do. And A.L. Kennedy's letter was absolutely beautiful and an amazing thing. Then another project that I did in Belfast. Belfast, in the First World War, all the, uh, all the Protestant community, they all joined up and they were all slaughtered in the Battle of the Somme. So the Battle of the Somme is a huge moment of Unionist commemoration. The Catholics, when Ireland, when that part of Ireland uh, still uh, Britain, they signed up. And after 1916, which is when the Battle of the Somme happens, they've been completely forgotten and uncommemorated. And then the, this, this group called 1914 Now asked me to make a piece for Belfast about the First World War. And I thought, crikey, I don't want to do that. That's a, <laughs> that's a nightmare. <laughs> but I worked with uh, this group called Art Sector in Belfast. And I'd made this piece called What Unites Human Beings is Huge and Wonderful, What Divides Human Beings is Small and Mean, a couple of years ago. It's now on show at Handle Street Projects at the moment. But I thought I'd recreate that in Belfast. And I got different with this group art sector. And art sector are very clever. They work with different kinds of communities. So they'll work with the Hindu community, the Muslim community. They'll work with, um, they'll work with uh, Chinese people in the area. And by the way, they also, in the whole mix of it, they also work with Protestants and Catholics and people and a new generation for whom those battles don't seem so relevant. And they work with them all together and we produced this piece, which was basically that slogan, and then we lit it up at 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, when I was doing that, I was thinking, my God, this is a monstrous piece of community art. <laughs> but when we did it, it was really deeply moving to see all of these different people coming together because they had made their own letter and they had to come to Belfast City Hall and then light these candles. And, so, and then suddenly they, there was nothing to do afterwards, so they were hanging out, talking, talking about the First World War, talking about their different communities, their involvement in it. And it was a really, really moving thing. Coming to the end of the talk now. Last summer, in the, uh, last summer in the Royal Academy, I showed this piece. And uh, uh, this is a piece, this is ultimately really, I think, the most interesting thing that I've ever done, really. Uh, it was a, it, I was just lying on the sofa two years ago listening to the radio on New Year's Day. <laughs> and uh, there was this amazing broadcast by Eddie Mayer interviewing this doctor, David Knott. David Knott, since Srebrenica, he, he, every single year he has gone out to work with different charities, stitching people together in war zones. He is an extraordinary individual. And uh, Eddie Mayer interviewed him. This interview was uniquely powerful, I think, because what happened in it is it took, him, it took us on a journey uh, through his life. And David Knott is amazing you know he'd learned to be an airline pilot and thought being an airline pilot when you it's only interesting when there's a crisis 
when you're actually flying the plane, it's boring. So then he retrained to become a surgeon and then decided he wanted to work in these uh, terrible war zones. And he's an extraordinary person. And Eddie Mayer did this interview. And it's the most humane thing, you know. And, uh, and, but you get to this point in the middle of the interview where, where David Knott is explaining what the surgery is like in Aleppo. And he's saying there's blood all over the floor. Uh, it's like an abattoir. After every surgery, you, a man comes in with a brush and just sweeps out the blood. And it was so horrible, really, what he was describing. Eddie Mayer was lost for words for his next question. And there was this silence. And I woke up. I'd had a bit too much to drink on New Year's Eve. And I was dimly aware of this conversation in the background. And I woke up in this silence in Radio 4. And then Eddie Mayer you know, gets this conversation going again. And it's very dark, you know, and he's saying that, and the thing about this conversation was that, uh, and that the awfulness of this campaign is that uh, snipers were shooting pregnant women, they were shooting children on a Wednesday, they were shooting boys in the groin on a Thursday. The things that he described are absolutely appalling. And, uh, and that's what made it different from other campaigns that David not have gone to, because civilians are normally caught in the crossfire and uh, they're not the targets. So that was the, the point of this interview. And uh, so I just thought, I don't want that interview to disappear. You know, I don't want that to fade in the digital space. I mean, things don't fade in the digital space quite so much now, do they? But I didn't want it to disappear and I wanted to make a physical record of it. I wanted to make it graphic. I wanted to make it so that you could read it and understand it. And I would have to do something with this, uh, make it into a physical thing. And uh, so we showed it at the Royal Academy. My idea was that we would try and sell it uh, in, the, in, in the show to raise money for the charity that takes him to Syria. I wasn't able to do that, as I still have it in my studio. But, ladies and gentlemen... This is, I got this from the printers this morning. Uh, so I'm only submitting two things to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition this year. I'm uh, submitting this, uh, this print. So I'm going to try and sell that to raise money for Syria relief. So that's, uh, and that's why I think that you can do things with art. You know, with art, it doesn't have to be a purely aesthetic experience. Being a purely aesthetic experience, can, strangely at the moment, to make, to make a painting of a lemon, to make a painting of a cat and submit it to the Royal Academy, I think, in the politics of now, is becoming a deeply subversive political act <laughs> because the government don't understand the arts. The sad thing is, I don't, it's not just the government, I don't think politicians understand the arts. They don't understand the benefit of the arts of any of them, really. They don't understand what it can do, what it does, what it does for individuals. They just don't understand it. So my, one of the big veins in my existence now is to, is to try and push this idea that artists and citizens should get in front of politicians. Don't bother lobbying politicians, just get in front of politicians and tell them your perspective. You know, you don't have to unite and come up with one perspective, but just tell them our perspective. So I'm standing as an independent 
then we invited David Knott and Eddie Mayer to come and see the painting. And that was, a, that was really bloody amazing because David, David Knott told Eddie Mayer, he said, but actually when he did that interview, he was traumatized and he was suffering from post-traumatic stress. And he's, and he's just saying to Eddie Mayer, thank you, thank you so much for doing that interview and listening to me, you know, and it's like, you know, didn't need thanks, but Eddie Mayer, Eddie Mayer, you know, he's quite a hard person, was in tears when he was, uh, when he was uh, talking to him. And that's the painting. And what was strange about it was that people actually did read that in that space, which was extraordinary. This is a, a couple of weeks, no, a couple of days before we launched the art party film. Blimey, Michael Gove got sacked. <laughs> I think three days before we were going to launch the film. I looked in the paper. I went, oh, no! <laughs> I think I was the only person to be upset. <laughs> so I phoned up the distributors. I phoned up the distributors. Put a sticker on the movie that says, see the movie that pred Nick predicted the demise of Cove. <laughs> and then this is, this is me doing a lecture. I do these lectures. You can see this lecture at the uh, arts emergency at the CAS where, uh, opposite the Whitechapel. And that's me and Nicholas Burio who I did it for. And then the, the other campaign that I'm working on uh, this election is big posters. We're going to, we're, it's not an enormous amount of posters. We raise money with a wonderful art fund and the Arts Council to put posters by artists all across the country simply telling people to go and vote. They just say V-O-T-E. Uh, Jeremy Dellers is, I haven't got a slide of it, but it's really great. It's the, uh, it's the menus at uh, Stonehenge and the Druids of turn the menace so it says vote and that's gone up in Eastbourne I saw Twitter just before I went on and so these big posters are going to go up around the country by artists telling people to vote in the election not vote for any particular party just go and vote and then that's the last image I'll leave you with you know go and vote unleash the democratic benefit of the arts I want to welcome Mike Taylor Mike's produced a wonderful book Porpoise Press is a great organization I think great enterprise and now we're going to have a, a discussion just talking about some of these themes but I'm going to ask Mike a couple of questions so Mike what I wanted to ask you about was your project generally and how it started but also uh, working with artists and doing a very specific project where you work with I wanted to I know I'm not the first person who's worked with you. I wanted to ask you about a couple of these projects where you've worked with specific artists to invite them to make an addition. Who was the first person that you worked oh, with to right. do that? Well, I suppose in a way that, I mean, the studio was set up um, as an extension of, essentially, first of all, my practice as an artist, but as a way of, of earning a living through what I enjoy doing, you know, having that privilege, having that luck to actually work at something I enjoy doing. And, um, and I was teaching and I, and I enjoyed working with um, students and I enjoyed working with artists because it became an extension of my own education, actually coming across people that were making work that was very different from what I was interested in and what I made with different backgrounds, different views and different opinions. And it actually just fed in. 
um, and actually broadened my whole view of the art making process, um, view of the world, view of experience, the whole sort of um, gamut of being an artist became broader the more contact I had with people um, in terms of making. And as a personality, I suppose, the idea of making is a very intrinsic part of how I engage with the world. You know, it's, it's a very sort of Meccano, um, Lego sort of, let's make it to try and understand it. So uh, I make work to understand how I think and how other artists think. And so the first artist I worked for, you know, it was very sort of small commercial sort of studios. But in terms of actually, um, once I'd actually established my own studio, the first person I invited to make work with was Jock, Jock Mofadjian. I well, Jock is an extraordinary uh, graphic manipulator, isn't he? I mean, he is, and actually, I, I, I do remember very clearly, I, I suspect he might vehemently deny this, but I do remember, um, you know, Jock was somebody I had seen in a show um, along with Eileen Cooper at one of their first ever galleries when I was still a student, and, and I just thought it was an extraordinary um, aggressive um, approach to art making at that time. It was, it was figurative, which certainly wasn't around, it wasn't the vogue at that time. Um, you didn't see a lot of it in, in commercial galleries. And it was a small gallery. And, and it was some years later that I, um, he had a show um, in Cork Street at the time that I approached him through the gallery to make some work, invited him to make some work. Um, because it was always seemed to me a work that was, was rooted in a graphic tradition. And we had worked for a few weeks, and I had the temerity to say to him that, you know, that essentially he was a graphic artist. And, you know, I'd, I'm surprised that I managed to walk away from that, really, because he found that at that time a rather almost insulting comment. I think because he thought that I was accusing him of being illustrative um, in a way that um, he felt that was, was undermining to, to what he was doing. But for me, he was an artist who used the line to describe the world. And drawing for him is, is seemed at that time the, the root of what he was doing. And so he was graphically uh, picturing the world and his ideas of the world and his ideas of relationships and things like that. So um, he was pretty much the first artist that I, rather than the bulk of what we do is people brought into us through galleries, through publishers. So, you know, we have a, a broad range of people coming in. Um, he, I think, was pretty much the first artist that I went out to and said, you know, I like your work. I'd like to take the risk of spending my time making work with you to see what can come up with. Do you think there is something quite interestingly political about printmaking? Well, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I'm sat there I'm listening to your talk and thinking, you know, where on earth do I fit into all of this? Because essentially, you know, um, what I do is make um, what's referred to as limited edition prints. Um, they're handmade, they're crafted, they're rooted, even though we use digital technology and photographic technology, they're still rooted in um, a 19th century and even earlier um, technologies. But one of the things that you know, the more I got involved in print and the more it became my subject, and particularly when I started teaching, um, the more you go into it so you have a broader understanding. Of course, you come across 
the notion that um, I was always interested at, at the turn of the millennium. They had something like the Guardian Observer had a list of the 100 most important inventions in the previous millennium. Well, certainly in the top 10, possibly in the top mm. one or two, was movable type. Mm. And that, you know, not the, not the Apple Mac, not the computer, but it was movable type. And, uh, you know, so the printed word became the biggest sort of social and political changer of European history mm. um, in that millennium. It brought in the Reformation, it brought the word of um, Martin Luther around the world, and, you know, and it had this an enormous radical change in a way that um, is very difficult to see quite since in terms of a technology of that sort of type. And um, so I was always interested in, in that in a historical sense. But I'm involved in limited edition handmade prints. So when you go around the fair, you see things that there are people um, and galleries showing work that is relatively cheap but there's an awful lot of work that is into the tens of thousands of pounds. And so it's a very exclusive world that, to some extent, I deal with. It is, but you... Uh, but I, I, mean, I was just wandering around the fair, and I uh, saw um, one of my heroes is uh, Eric Revelius. Beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's lovely to see that his work is now becoming more seen and more sort of recognised, that whole sort of generation of, of British artists yeah. um, during the sort of 20s, 30s, 40s, and whatever. Yeah, I think that's... Um, you see, those submarine prints and things that mm. was a you know, that was like a government project to document the war and well, there's, also, there's also a lot of those um the studio prints mm. around which are essentially if you go to one of the stands osborne samuel and i've got a feeling they're on other stands there are what outwardly are commercially produced photolithographic reproductions of paintings mm. um and they were they were some of them were called the school print series and i think there were others and there's Eric Revilius and John Nash and you know various other sort of people there, and they're beautiful images. But they underneath they've got the um, commercial printer. They're four color separations. Um, they're everything that, to some extent, what I'm involved with is the sort of opposite of because they were about this mass produce, get it out there and bring it into the schools, bring it into mm. social clubs and things like that. I mean, that is what I was sat there thinking, listening to your talk, in that you're producing commercially made, I imagine this print for the RA is an unlimited edition? No, it's not, no. It's a screen print, actually. It's a screen print, is it? It's a screen There's 50 of them. Why have you decided to limit it that? Because you could, of course, have made it an unlimited edition. Yeah, I could have done. But I think what I might do with my... Michael Gove letter, I did a similar print with the Michael Gove letter, which is I took a photograph of it and then had it made up into a screen and we made a screen print of it. And, that's, and this is what interests me about printmaking. And I don't think artists exploit this enough, is that you can make money very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did, a, we did a, uh, an edition of the Michael Gove letter, mm. which was done in the same way as this. And we sold that out in an evening, and that's paid for my campaign against Michael Gove. <laughs> well, of course, and ladies and gentlemen, that Handle Street projects, you can go and get. <laughs> and then we thought, oh, hold on, that went too quickly. We should capitalise on that. So now I'm doing a green ink version. <laughs> but in a way, it goes back to the very early days of print as well, because all the all the sort of people like Durham, whatever, produced prints yeah. because they were quicker and cheaper to sell than trying to sell their paintings. Yeah. So that that sort of relationship actually is the root of printmaking in a way. Yeah, I think you know, that... The idea of the multiple, that, that you can actually, you know, because you, you quite often see in books, 
print referred to as the democratic art. Mm. And, you know, because it's not that, you know, you, you make a painting, one person can own that painting. If you're very lucky, they might put it into shows or they might donate it to a museum or something. But essentially, that single person has the sole right to view that piece, yeah. whereas the print can be viewed by many people. So it's, it's to some extent, has that sort of built into it. And also, one thing about printmaking as well, I think, which is really interesting, is that it works, it works really well on digital media. Mm. That's a strange thing. A lot of people come up to me and they say, oh, I've seen the image of Andrew Dworkin. <laughs> it is a slightly mad image of a big purple Andrew Dworkin. And they say, oh, I really like that image. And they haven't seen it in a gallery or anything. They've just seen it on Instagram. Mm. And uh, I think that's quite interesting because digital media, there is now a, new, a whole new generation of kids who are really great at graphic images, are really savvy with computers, and are really good uh, at, at ideas about distribution and how things flow around. And on some level, I think printmaking is brilliant in that interrelationship because you can understand a graphic image that's been conceived in that way through digital media in a really interesting way. So I sort of, I kind of think, of course, the the, the beautifully produced print, of course, is, uh, you know, an extraordinarily important experience to see the thing in the moment. But the nature of graphics is that graphics is, you know, is plastic. Mm. And if it's a great image, if it works like that, it'll also work on a really shitty iPhone screen somewhere. And I think that's, I think that's very interesting. I mean, yeah. the, the, the prints that we've made, I mean, we've, we've made one large project, the Feminist Icons, mm. and the first print that I can remember making was for the House of Fairy Tales, yes. um, which was a small little woodcut, yeah. sort of two-color woodcut, very, very simple, but actually a very sort of beautiful little object in its own right. And then um, you did um, Esther's Law after the, if I remember rightly, you did a, a sort of residency um, at, and I've forgotten where, but... Yeah, it's the New Art Gallery, Warsaw. That was it. And, the, and uh, well, the, actually, the thing about that is that you said, oh, let's do a lithograph. And uh, when I was a kid in Brandlehow Primary School in Putney, uh, the walls were lined with those... John Nash lithographs, because yeah. it was a project, I think, by the Inner London Education Authority to get art in schools. And they sent out these uh, really cheaply produced lithographs of John Nash mm. and I think Eric Revelius and other... Yeah, there's a whole series of them. And, uh, and, and that inspired me, because with lithography, you've got this very... You know, my work is quite... Actually, I mean, it's quite fluid and anything can happen on some kind of level, but on another level, it takes hours painting these slightly wobbly letters. <laughs> you have to sit there and do it. Whereas with, lith with, with uh, lithography, you're working with kind of a, an ink, mm. and it's much more fluid. And it just, uh, I just really enjoyed doing that because it just reminded me about a whole did you find visual it, nature which I haven't been able to access for a long I mean, time because I'm so up my bum with the lettering. And, and uh, <laughs> sort of banners and things that you make that are painted onto wood, onto board and card and stuff like that. They are directly painted. Um, they're started and finished in mm. uh, one go in a sense. Yeah. And they're constructed on, on that board. Whereas the prints, if you think about the feminist icons, they were all, all the colours had to be drawn on separate sheets. And it was mm -hmm. like a sort of uh, jigsaw construction to bring it together. Um, so it sort of, uh, did you find that it sort of broke the spell of the sort of spontaneous in any way? 
the thing about the fluidity of the printmaking is that it reminded me a lot of my mum. Uh, so my mum was an artist and my dad was an artist and uh, it, it, they were very working class people but because they were good at drawing that completely sort of transformed their lives. But my mum was an etcher and uh, so uh, she, uh, she came to etching later on. She'd gone to the Royal College in the Second World War actually. It was evacuated to Ambleside. Uh, but then she didn't make much art because she had kids, which she always resented. <laughs> but uh, but then she she went to Morley College and did printmaking at Morley College, and that's a fantastic resource. And she learned etching, and so, so she started. So she bought an etching press. So in our house, we had all this acid <laughs> and uh, stuff in the front room, and this uh, kind of press. And she'd be making these prints. And actually, it really reminded me, making that, lith making that first lithograph for the Estes Law, which was about trying to get 50% of women in Parliament, <laughs> that really reminded me of the kind of like the beauty of the graphic process, inscribing something with what you're thinking. And that's essentially what I do. And that is why I think printmaking is a political thing, actually, because you're inscribing something with what you're intending to say to somebody else and it's a very direct interrelationship and you can make hundreds of them and tell hundreds of people about it. But maybe what we should do now is have some questions. I should add just one little story. The last print that we made um, with Bob was a print called Sing and it's a text piece and it very much fits into um, your whole sort of ethos of the relationship. It's all about um, giving art to children to make them powerful. Art makes children powerful, it gives them a voice. Last night we were just about to sort of wrap up the fair. It had been a long, long sort of day and a couple came up and just asked me um, about the print. It was on, it's on the wall in the fair and uh, it was all done in very sort of hushed tones and, um, and the, the woman kept looking over her shoulder and she eventually said that she, she was with work friends and they didn't want to see this conversation going on. Um, so it was rather strange. So we had this conversation. They wanted to know about the work and they wanted to know about you. So I got your book out and showed some work and talked about as much as I knew in terms of the print and everything like that. And at the end of it, um, she said, OK, we'd, we'd like to buy it. And, um, and then she just whispered, because I'm pregnant and we don't want anybody to know. So we're going to have to can just wrap it up quietly in the corner. And it was the fact that, um, that, that, that she was this secret pregnant woman um, who had seen this work and reacted so strongly to the idea of the fact that, yes, she wanted this for her child. She wanted this idea of, of them being powerful, having a voice, and the art, you know, because they were wandering around a little art fair, had drawn her to it. And I thought it was a beautiful little sort of vignette of what these situations can be. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all coming and please join me in thanking Mike Taylor of Paul Profess and Bob and Roberta Smith for a wonderful event. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk